Welcome to the review of Democracy, the journal of the CEU Democracy Institute, where we discuss some of the most exciting new ideas concerning the past, present, and future of democracies across the globe. I am Ferenc Lotso. I co-head the ideas section at Refdem, where we deal, among others, with questions of memory and inclusion. And it is my very special pleasure to be hosting Miriam Zadov today. Welcome to the show, Miriam, and thanks so much for joining. Thanks so much for inviting me and having me on the show. Uh, great to have you here at the Review of Democracy. By way of an all too brief introduction, Miriam Zadov is a historian, and since 2018, she has acted as the director of the Munich Documentation Center for the History of National Socialism. She was previously a professor of history and Jewish studies at Indiana University in Bloomington. In her research and teaching, she focuses on remembrance cultures, on new ways of conveying history, and the role of museums as political and democratic institutions. Uh, Miriam Zadov is the editor and author of numerous books, uh, exhibition catalogues, and articles. And I should briefly mention uh, in this context that the Documentation Center for the History of National Socialism that she directs has become a place of discussion and dialogue about Germany's past and also about the relevance of this past for the present and future of Europe and beyond, and alongside contemporary art, participation and digitalization now both play a central role in the work of this center as she directs. So beyond all that, Miriam Zadov has just released a new volume in the German language under the title Gewalt und Gedächtnis, Globale Erinnerung im 21. Jahrhundert, that is violence and remembrance, global memory in the 21st century, which I have read with great interest and pleasure and I'm thrilled to have the chance to discuss it with her here today. So now the essays in this new collection are partly personal, Miriam, and they are connected to several projects you have contributed to, to your various travels and to conversations you have pursued with various people. And they focus on, I would say, diverse examples of research, art, curation that have made you pensive and that you may also have been enthusiastic about. So may I ask what motivated you to publish such a collection of essays on remembrance in the 21st century? And what are some of the key themes that you wished to address? Uh, yeah, thank you for this question, um, which really brings me back to this moment when I started with a wish. And this is like, you know, every book you write, at a certain moment, you know, there is something you want to do. Um, there's something you want to express. And I think this wish came out both out of an uneasiness uh, and out of uh, a growing curiosity. The uneasiness came out of the experience or the perception that what we are seeing today in so many countries around the globe uh, is on the one hand, sort of, it's kind of like a, a growing tendency uh, to right-wing ideas. There is almost like a fascist revolution happening, different degrees, different uh, countries, but uh, a general shift towards the extreme right. And uh, with that also memory wars, 
wars on uh, the condition of national memory, on the stories we tell to each other, the myth we uh, share. Uh, and that is basically the common ground for a democracy, because what holds a democracy together is usually the experience of a, of a shared past. Now, if we are living in countries uh, that bring together people with very different past experiences, how do we get that together? And what are the challenges uh, that come with it? And if we reject it, what does it mean for our democracy? Sort of that we do not share the past anymore, so we do not share we do not share the present. Uh, sort of like with you know with various groups and various uh, backgrounds. Uh, so that is one thing, and the other thing is the issue of you know feeling curious about different ways of addressing the past. I've seen I've lived in the United States and I've seen the cultural wars on Confederate monuments. Uh, the realization for America to suddenly say like, oh, we've missed something. There's a story we haven't been telling. Uh, and that is, of course, the story of slavery, but also the story, not only the story of African-Americans, but also of other groups living in America. Uh, for example, the fact that the United States did not have a museum on the history of slavery until 2014. Uh, and the museum that opened then, the Whitney Plantation Museum, is a private museum. It's not a national museum. And so these wars that are going on uh, in many countries right now about kind of like who is allowed to tell their story, but also the question of what is transnational exchange adding to that? And if we look in the post into the post-war period in Germany, 1945, the transatlantic exchange was extremely important uh, for German democracy. The input from the allies, especially from America, American re-education, the demands that were that were set for Germany to become a new country again after this terrible catastrophe, that all was very much connected to this to this transnational exchange. And today we see again a wish for more transnational knowledge. For example, when these wars on history started in the U.S., someone said, and I think Susan Neyman um, was uh, I'm quoting her. She's like someone said. Well, let's look at Germany. What do they do with all their Hitler statues? And then Susan Neyman answered, and she's like, well, there are none because there was the Potsdam Conference and there was a decision to say, let's get rid of all that. And that was the allies. And this wish to learn from each other, from each other's uh, way of, of, of looking into a contested past, which is never easy, and to see the shortcomings in different places. Because you know, in Germany, we have the feeling we've done everything so well. Uh, and that is an impression that, for example, many Americans or American journalists and historians voiced over the past years. And some journalists would come uh, to, uh, to Germany and look at sort of German memory culture. And then there were two different ones who came to the same conclusion. They said like, on an institutional level, Germany is absolutely amazing. But on the personal level, uh, there are many shortcomings. Why didn't people talk in families? Why, why didn't they talk about, you know, their grandparents' past? What, what, where is this personal level? And to come to these insights, we have to have this exchange. If we stay in the national context only, you know, we're we're stuck with our own uh, view and 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 do not get any corrective. So that was kind of like the, these are many elements that contributed to the wish to look outside of Germany, to, um, to look at different examples. 
but also to reflect upon the question, where did German memory culture start? And German memory culture did not start as a German national project, but it started, as I already said, you know, the allies, um, uh, survivors who came, came from many different places in Europe to Germany, who contributed to these, um, you know, first projects on memory of the Holocaust, Jewish historians who, uh, who wrote in exile. So it was inherently a transnational, international uh, project. And then at a certain point became nationalized. And this is something I wanted to kind of like, sort of like um, uh, question and, and reflect on, 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 its, uh, on its history. Uh, thank you so much. That's an amazing uh, introduction to, to the subject and, and to the contents of this new uh, volume. Now, you have also addressed several points already that I wanted to ask you a, a bit more about. And I wanted to start by one thing that you underline uh, early on in the book, which is that the ongoing poly crisis uh, makes this always really difficult and fraught process of remembering violence, especially a fraught, you may say. And you place a particular emphasis uh, in the collection on uh, migration and on refugees trying to uh, come to, uh, to Europe. And on the other hand, you also really emphasize how this widespread ignorance of their plight in European societies, and there's a powerful trend to try to forget about their tragedies. So I wanted to ask you what strikes you perhaps the most about the way Europeans uh, remember or maybe choose to overlook all the related uh, suffering and, and all the victims uh, of, this, of this massive uh, process? And what's, what are some of the larger cultural or political implications uh, you would draw? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the memory of refugees and, and migrants is something that is uh, especially striking. I, I did uh, start to think about that when I gave a um, I, I, uh, I was teaching a class at Bloomington University during the so-called European refugee crisis of 2015. We were sort of like um, analyzing a phenomenon of, um, of refugees and migrants since the late 19th century uh, and uh, sort of in a worldwide context, um, of course, with an emphasis on the several wars on uh, America, because we were in America with our class and with our seminar but also on examples from around the globe. And um, it is, of course, a topic which is incredibly striking because uh, refugees and migrants usually do not have memory. For them, memory is often uh, a luxury. It's something um, that can be very painful. So you have to, you know, sort of like you have to um, prioritize. Um, you leave every object that carries memory behind. Today, refugees often carry only a phone that, that con contains all their memories, and if they lose it, then the memory is gone. Uh, so you lose the place and you lose the memory in the process. And it's interesting that there are very few cultural spaces who offer that offer room for this specific memory. Uh, there are some, you know, say like Ellis Island uh, is one of these uh, places, but they actually focus just on this transitional moment. But you do not have any, you know, uh, monuments in train stations that would remember that large groups of people have passed here or that would put an emphasis on that. And there, there, there is a, I, I think it's an example I mentioned in the book as well, there's a project by the Jewish Museum in Juan Ems, 
uh, at the border to Switzerland, actually a, um, a path that you can walk or cycle uh, that remembers the refugees that tried to cross the border into Switzerland during National Socialism and, and their individual stories. Um, but this is, this is one of the few projects that exist. What is also, what is extremely challenging about refugees and migrants is that often, and if you look at sort of like all the tragedies we see today, people drowning in the Mediterranean, that often there are not even investigations into the death of people, not talking about the life, the names, but just the death, um, just to find out where did people die. And it's actually a right that you have wherever you die as a person, it doesn't have to be your own country. The country has to investigate how you actually uh, lost your life. And that is not happening anymore. So these people are just simply vanishing from our uh, perception. That is the one thing that I found really interesting about, about this uh, topic. But on the other hand, there is also another aspect, and that is that the protection of refugees and migrants is well, partly a result of the two world wars and especially of national socialism and the Holocaust and the Nazi genocides um, that resulted into the Declaration of Human Rights uh, and into the Geneva Convention and so on. And what we see today is that many European countries and all over the world are questioning uh, the Declaration of Human Rights, which is anyhow, you know, nobody has to actually, it's not a binding declaration, so it's not, um, there is no legal um, uh, aspect to it, but anyhow, more and more countries are uh, questioning whether these human rights apply to everyone or just to Europeans or to people who are, are citizens of countries that would support and protect their status. And this I find increasingly um, uh, crucial for our understanding of and our sort of learning from the past, what is kind of like a, a human approach towards history, uh, to whom do we apply this kind of humanity and, and who is being denied this kind of humanity. And, um, and, and we see that the learning from the past when it comes to refugees and asylum seekers is uh, actually an, an unlearning very often. And you know, as someone who represents a memory institution, I often observe these moments um, of um, you know, politicians uh, giving speeches uh, when it comes to the remembrance of, um, uh, of national socialism. And then they leave the venue and they open up another uh, asylum uh, center, which just intends to deport people and to deny them these basic human rights. And the question is, of course, how do you get that together? So is memory culture then just a fig leaf or uh, is it just meant to um, to cover up a, an increasingly inhuman policymaking? And that is, of course, a crucial question for institutions like ours, because that could not be our purpose and should not be our purpose. Uh, thank you so much. I think you have just ended on a note I definitely want to uh, return to later on. But first, I wanted to uh, ask you about something that you also remark uh, on these pages, which is that the contests uh, over what to remember and how exactly to remember uh, may never have been so dramatic. Uh, and they have also become 
uh, not only global, but really existential, right? You may say there's a lot of polarization, there's a lot of acrimony around uh, these kinds of questions of, of remembrance. And you have had the chance to travel across the world, uh, familiarize yourself with key sites also outside Europe. Uh, the book, uh, the various chapters in this book uh, indeed explore a host of fascinating and really important uh, cases uh, from the US to Japan, uh, from Cambodia to South Africa and, and so on. So may I ask you again something that, you, that you, you started talking about during your first response, how these explorations and the re reflections uh, they have triggered uh, on key sites uh, across uh, the globe, how have those impacted your perspective on Germany and also on European trends in remembrance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that was um, uh, the most important process of, of learning for myself. And that's what I refer to as the curiosity of trying to find out what happens in other parts of the world. Because in Germany, we sometimes feel that we've done such an amazing job in uh, remembering um, the German uh, crimes, which of course have been unusually uh, dramatic. So now we had to do uh, our sort of like our share and, and and find ways of really remembering sort of developing institutions and so on. Um, yet at the same time, I think that this can can be um, this sort of like the feeling that we've done so well gives us kind of the feeling that we've done better than others. And this is something that I wanted to find out and ask myself, oh, what what exactly happened here, apart from the fact that as I said before, what became German memory culture was not really a German project, but a project many, many, many people and institutions and uh, ideas worldwide have contributed. Uh, but also uh, to look at, you know, the first sites of remembrance after 1945, the first sites, and this is something, of course, that is new after 1945, and that is something that did not exist before that, it, it is that we remember the victims. Before that, we would, like after World War I, we would remember the heroes, the war heroes, even if they became victims, but the soldiers mainly. You would not remember the victims. Um, it's a process that starts, you know, in the 1920s, uh, in the arts, um, for example, Kitty Kolwitz or others that uh, start to draw the victims, but not in sort of official memory culture. Um, and so after 1945, this changes. And usually we would think, yeah, there were the first uh, um, formal concentration camp sites that were opened as museums in Germany. And that actually happens in East Germany first and not in the West. In the West, it takes much longer. But even before that, one of the first museums that is being built after the catastrophe is the Peace Memorial Museum in Hiroshima. And Hiroshima was considered at that time, and this is, of course, the context of the Cold War, as the biggest catastrophe, because the Cold War was, was kind of like that. That was the present, and people were experiencing this new nuclear threat, uh, and everybody was referring to the bomb as the actual catastrophe of World War II. This is, that is a perception that then starts to shift when Nuremberg trials and other trials, the Auschwitz trial, uh, in the 1960s, uh, the Eichmann trial in the 1960s, that suddenly, or not suddenly, after a long and painful process, the dramatic uh, story, kind of like the, the shift that happened uh, due to the Holocaust uh, and the Nazi genocides was realized in a public conscience. And then Auschwitz became 
the stronger point of reference. Uh, and Hiroshima was kind of like, you know, less importance. But it was interesting for me to see or important to see how how this remembrance actually started and what exactly led to the fact that in Hiroshima there was a museum built because of course also Japan was under the impact of the Cold War it was occupied by the Americans it was very difficult to talk about it was the first years after Hiroshima and Nagasaki was even forbidden to talk about the bomb it was forbidden uh, to 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 share images with the Japanese public, so it was also a process there. But it was uh, interesting to see that there are different um, developments across the globe. Uh, and another aspect that was important for me to learn, uh, and that was something which was related to the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, that many German newspapers would actually write. Uh, when the war in Ukraine, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine, they would say, oh, this is the first war in Europe after 1945, which is, of course, not true. It was the war in Yugoslavia, uh, and there was even a genocide there that had been forgotten. And then there were also, and this is something that often in this context of the never again, never again war was voiced that, yeah, we had the war until 1945. But the war continued in other parts of the world. The war continued in Asia, the war continued in Africa uh, and in other parts of the world. And people who have experienced World War II uh, or their families who have experienced World War II in other parts of, than Europe, like let's say North Africa or in other parts of the world, then continued to become victims of the war that is ongoing uh, or other wars. Um, and many of them came to Europe and they brought these memories with them. So there is a very complex and multi-layered history of violence in Europe through migration, but also through different experiences, also people who have experienced these wars as soldiers. I recently spoke to a man who was a forced laborer in Germany. He came from uh, the Netherlands. Um, uh, and he was brought to Germany. And then after 1945, he enrolled as a soldier uh, in the colonial war in um, uh, that the Netherlands fought in, uh, in Indonesia. And so there are many, also in many biographies, you see these various layers of violence reflected, uh, and we often do not bring them together uh, in one narrative. And I felt that, or I feel that this is something we have missed. This is one part of the story. The other part of the story is, and that is more about the memory and the ways we um, we remember uh, and how we kind of like translate this remembrance into aesthetics, into museums, into exhibitions, into narratives, is um, to look at these places and museums in Africa or in Cambodia or in Korea, uh, in the context of a global memory culture, because this is something that has started to exist since the 1990s, when the Holocaust became a global memory, uh, when the United Nations um, uh, came up with the Holocaust, the International Holocaust Remembrance Day on January 27th, uh, and other global developments happened that museums across the globe, but even before that, started to learn from Holocaust memory. For example, there is a, a museum uh, remembering the history and the, the suffering of the comfort women 
in Korea, um, and this museum is in Seoul in South Korea, uh, and the aesthetics they use is very much connected, is very closely connected to Holocaust memory. And I asked the director if this was intentional, and she said, yes, not because they want to um, kind of like sort of not out of a competitive reason to say like, oh yeah, what this women experience was as bad as, that is not the background. The background is to say people who visit places like that, they expect a certain aesthetics, they expect a certain narrative, and this is a language that was developed by Holocaust museums, and this is the language we want to use. And so you see, for example, in many contexts in Korea or in Cambodia, that uh, that shoes are being used or uh, clothes, uh, you know, it of course resonates immediately if you know Holocaust museums, it's like, oh yeah, I know that aesthetics, I know that narrative. And it's it's been done, I think, also in search of a language of remembrance, not in not not out of the wish to sort of compete and say like, oh, the auto genocide in Cambodia was worse than the Holocaust. That is not in the background of the curator's minds. But the idea is to say this was a very strong way of remembrance uh, and aesthetics that has been developed in the context of Holocaust museums. We want to learn from that. This is how I read it. You could, of course, also be critical about it and say like, you know, for example, in Korea, why don't they develop a stronger local narrative, a local aesthetics? And I would say, yes, this would be really important and interesting and partly they do so. Uh, but it, it is, on the other hand, understandable why these curators are taking this kind of decisions. Uh, thank you so much. My my next question actually relates very closely to what you have just been uh, talking about, but I wanted to address that really large question of uh, transcultural connections, if you wish, uh, the multidirectional memory on a more theoretical uh, level, right? This is, of course, an ongoing scholarly debate. And indeed, you repeatedly show uh, how stories that tend to be remembered uh, separately are actually interconnected in, in, in the historical record. We see a lot of uh, ways of them being intertwined. And therefore, you argue that perhaps we should uh, work towards uh, common narratives, really. Uh, but I wanted to ask you here more about you know, why you consider uh, that such links should be highlighted more from, again, a theoretical point of view. What do we gain by placing these kinds of interconnections uh, at the center of our attention? Um, I think, uh, you know, the, the first or kind of like my point of departure is the question what history is actually supposed, what kind of questions history is supposed to answer and history sort of as a scientific, as a, uh, as a scientific discipline, as an academic discipline is very closely related to the, the nation state of the 19th century. So it's about kind of like a unifying thread between, you know, people who live in one country. Um, it's about, you know, sharing a, a joint past. And it's about developing national myths that, that keep us together. In a situation of growing sort of political extremes and uh, um, polarization, it's becoming increasingly more difficult. And the question is that we kind of like, reflect on the fact, you know, in a, in a polarized society, what is the role of history? 
um, what, what, what is history supposed to tell us? And something that I often observe now with this shift towards a more um, extreme right-wing or right-wing policies is that we often see this narrative of we and them. And this is something that in Germany, I would say, like, if you would say, like, oh, what, what is the shortcomings or what, what is one of the problems of German memory culture or what is one of the myths that the Nazis came up with that we haven't been able to get rid of? It's this myth of there is a we and them. And you hear that very often and very sort of like immediately there is a conflict, there is an issue, there is an issue with migration, with uh, asylum seekers. It's always we and them. And, uh, and, and this I find extremely dangerous and extremely problematic, and it's problems that we share in, in many countries across the globe. Um, so it's kind of like the dealing with a contested past or dealing with the past in general poses challenges to us, and they might be different in Germany from, let's say, the United States when it comes to the contents, but structurally they're very similar. Um, and the, the challenges are, are, are very similar. And I think that we can learn a lot when we look at different contexts. And, um, you know, we have been discussing a lot about the question of multidirectionality. And I think it's, of course, really important. And that's why I wrote this book also. But it's something that has been around for a long time. For example, if you look at, you know, the history of um, National Socialism and the history of the Holocaust, they're different. There were different groups of victims and whose stories have been told and by whom. For example, if you look at the Holocaust and, and Jewish genocide, the first stories that have been told were by refugees in Amsterdam and then in London, where Alfred Wiener opened the, uh, the Wiener Library uh, and did first interviews with people who became refugees. Uh, and these first memory sort of like Memories that have been told also started in Warsaw, uh, where in 1940, the hidden archive uh, of Emanuel Ringelblum and his friends and, and collaborators uh, was started by, you know, telling the story of the people living, forced to live in the ghetto because they knew that their story would not be told by their oppressors and they wanted to tell their story themselves. Uh, or people who survived and uh, Jews who ended up in the DP camps in Bavaria and founded historical commissions uh, and wanting to tell their stories. Other groups were less self-organized, had less um, structural support, international support. They really had problems in telling their own stories, like, for example, uh, Roma and Sinti uh, or, um, or people who, who became uh, um, victims of the euthanasia program. There was nobody telling their story. Uh, or homosexuals who, or queers who, who were um, victims of ongoing discrimination, legal discrimination after 1945. And so I looked a little bit into these early stories. And for example, I found out that some of these Jewish institutions like the Wiener Library or Jewish historians were among the first ones who interviewed uh, survivors uh, among the Roma and Sinti. So, there was a multidirectionality from the start. Uh, for example, Avram Sutskeva, one of the survivors of the, the Vilna Ghetto and a Yiddish poet in Israel, wrote a, a poem very early on after the war on uh, Roma victims. And he would say, me, as the Jewish poet, I have to tell their story. 
it's my obligation. Um, so these cross-references have been there from the start. Uh, there was a, a multi-directionality from the start. And I think that this sort of this dimension of engagement, of resistance, of being political in, in remembering has been really crucial for this, for the creation of any sort of remembrance culture. And I think it has to be part of it until today. And today in different contexts. So today we have to ask ourselves, what is the political aspect? What is the sort of like, where does it get uncomfortable? And I think in many ways, memory culture always has to venture into the spaces that are a little uncomfortable. Uh, thank you so much for that. I should briefly mention that we have also just hosted Eri Joskovic, who's done, I think, a brilliant uh, job at exploring the uh, asymmetrical entanglements between Jewish and Roma history and memory. And I also wanted to ask you uh, about something that we have sort of been circling around. It's a very kind of critical subject and, and uh, sadly and, and tragically uh, a timely uh, subject as well, which is that we have to, I think, increasingly often question these days what uh, all the efforts to remember nationalistic uh, and anti-Jewish violence uh, in the recent past of, of Europe have actually achieved, have actually done to counteract uh, the rising trend of right-wing populism and also to reduce uh, anti-Jewish uh, prejudice and, and animosity. And again, this is I don't think this is a central uh, concern in this uh, new collection you have you have just published, but I nonetheless wish to ask uh, uh, you about, about this subject because I think it's really so, so timely and, and so important. So would you say that the widespread and often I think high quality and seemingly rather thorough uh, remembrance work of, of recent decades that we have been observing uh, in the Federal Republic of Germany has actually not produced the intended and expected results? And if so, what might be the reasons uh, behind uh, that shortcoming, or we may even say failure in some sense? Mm. Yeah, that's a very good question. I think there are a couple of answers. One of them is when, when I worked um, at the university in Germany, we started a project that intentionally wanted to bring new topics to schools. And one of them was to talk about the Jewish history of Germany, because in German school books and, the, and textbooks until that time, that's a couple of years ago, I think now it's getting better. Jews appeared um, only as victims. They appeared as victims of the persecution in the early modern uh, ages, uh, in the ghettos and so on, and then as victims of the Holocaust. Now, some people, some, you know, some teachers would sort of plainly ask, how can you uh, exclude someone who has always been excluded? So what was the big drama in 1933 if the Jews were always excluded? But of course, we know as historians that the Jews were not always excluded, that, you know, for example, the German middle class in the 19th century, many of sort of like many aspects of the German middle class culture at that time uh, were produced by Jews. Uh, and it was not a contribution to German culture, but it was German culture from within. But this is a story we have to tell. And we have not been telling the story uh, because we have in our minds still this homogeneity of a German, you know, of a German identity that is not a Jewish identity, it's not an identity of post-migrants, it's not a Muslim identity, but it's a Christian white German identity. And I think this is one of the big failures, um, for one. 
Another aspect is, and this is something I, I just remembered the other day, when I started working here at the Documentation Center in 2018, I made the claim that I didn't want us to only talk about the past, but also about the present and about the continuities of Nazi ideologies until today. And this was perceived by some people as uh, breaking a taboo or as something very unusual because the wish was, and I think when this center was created, it was a legitimate wish. Uh, it was to say, okay, there is this absolutely horrible past. We have to come to terms with it. And then we're starting, a, you know, now we're in a completely different world. This, we have left that behind. This is the 20th century with its cruelty, its violence, its genocide. But now we're in the 21st century, it's all different. But of course, we all know that this is not the case. Uh, and that this is a very sort of like, you know, German-centric perspective. And that um, even if you would say it's a very white German perspective, because, for example, the ongoing violence after 1945 against Jews or against uh, people perceived as non-Germans, non um, and I mean actual violence, acts of violence, has been overlooked. Uh, and so that there are many, many continuities. And sometimes the question, what have we learned from the past, can be very misleading, because it's a question that, um, that is, is grounded on the, or is based on the idea, the past is the past. The past is not relevant today anymore. We've learned from these atrocities and now we're in a completely different situation as a society. But on the other hand, we should actually ask the question, what are the continuities from this past? Who continued to um, spread fear? Who continued to spread uh, injustice? Uh, what kind of structural discrimination continued to be in place after 1945. And there are many. And this is something that is being addressed more and more today. So I think this is another aspect, uh, this wish to end this story in 1945, uh, that was really uh, problematic. There are other issues. I think, you know, one of them is, is really, it's, it's very much about for example, the question of um, Jewish identity, I see that as something that is relevant in, in discussions in Germany today, that Jewish identity can be something very, very different, like kind of like it can be left, it can be extreme left, it can be central, it can be also more, more towards the right. And this is all part of the Jewish experience. This is something that has often been overlooked in writing, for example, the the German, um, uh, the, the Jewish history of Germany. Uh, when I was writing a biography of, uh, of Werner Scholem, Gershom Scholem's brother, um, Gershom Scholem was of course this big icon of kind of like the Jewish intellectual in Germany in 1945. And Werner Scholem was completely forgotten. Neither in East nor West Germany, there was any memory of the communist brother who had been very active in the communist party before Stalinization, before Stalin's influence grew in Germany, uh, and then was murdered in Buchenwald. And this kind of like extreme left-wing revolutionary did not fit into our perception of Jewish-German history. Um, and so when I started writing this book, a lot of people would ask me, but you know, he was not Jewish. 
uh, he was Jewish. He was a revolutionary. He was, uh, he was, um, uh, he would not consider, he was not part of a Jewish community, of course, but he experienced a lot of anti-Semitism and he died as a Jew in a concentration camp. So he was in an ongoing discussion with his own Jewishness, but all these stories did not make it into a general uh, perception of, you know, a Jewish German history. Uh, and this is something that I would say adds to our perception of um, uh, what do we remember uh, is very limited. Uh, and it's it's very much sort of like meeting the expectations of a majority culture that wants remembrance to be to offer a solution for what we perceive as our own suffering as a culture, kind of like, as you know, the perpetrator nation. So we want a solution, we want the absolved from our crimes, uh, but we, we do not want to delve into the complexities of these histories. Yes, thank you so much. I mean, indeed, the Sholem family, of course, with the four brothers, I think tells you this very wide spectrum immediately. But indeed, you know, Gershom has been selected, I suppose, as the one representative. And, you know, when I grew up in Budapest in the 90s, his, his writings were published very widely. But I think nobody has really heard of the the, the, the brothers he had. And, 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 you know, Werner has definitely been forgotten also outside uh, Germany in the, in the same kind of way that you have just uh, described. But I also wanted us to maybe turn the, the gaze a, a bit and, and look at inspiring uh, examples uh, in closing, because, you know, you argue uh, in this collection that remembrance processes should be creative, uh, they should be empathic uh, towards various actors, uh, they should help us uh, foster uh, solidarity, uh, and ultimately they are contributions to creating a kind of culture of responsibility, uh, you may say. So I wanted to ask, you know, how you would describe uh, such practices uh, in concrete terms, you know, what would they uh, really uh, look like? And, and whether you could perhaps point us to a few examples from the recent past, or maybe also from, from, from the past before, that you consider especially successful at achieving these goals? Yeah, I think that that's, thank you for this question, because, um, you know, it's really when I started writing the book, um, or telling other people about the book, you say like, yeah, violence and memory, it's not really an uplifting topic, but actually for me in many ways, of course, it's also my profession, but still uh, it is because the people I would talk to or the people I would write about would be extremely inspiring in their solidarity, in their fight for democracy, in their fight for humanity. They would be kind of like the icons that we need or want in, especially in, in times like, like the ones we experience now. And of course, the most important, wonderful, beautiful example are survivors who have become witnesses and who have decided to tell their story against probably their personal needs um, of wanting to forget. Uh, because, and, and I've often talked to survivors and, and some would say, it's extremely difficult for me to, to talk about these stories over and over again, you know, it's, it's I'm, I'm going through my trauma again and again when talking to young people or when, you know, giving talks or uh, being in conversation. But I want to do that because I feel that um, I can change something. And they would become our moral sort of like, you know, 
would help us to develop some sort of sense of moral moral compass or you know um, to, to develop a sense of understanding of what is humanity and how should we act. Uh, and they did it often against their own interest or their, their own needs um, because they would believe in a better world. You know, just the fact that you become uh, someone who's going through their trauma over and over again because you believe there can be a better world is so extremely optimistic. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely, it's crazy if you think about it, that someone would wish to do so. Um, and that's why also the meeting and talking to survivors for many people described as kind of like an extremely important moment because they with their biography and their wish to tell their story uh, would make a connection that we do not have without them. But there are also other institutional examples that I found really interesting and you know there are many but uh, I want to mention just a few for example I, I've been mentioning the the museum for the comfort women before um, this museum is a sort of like a combination of memory and activism because the comfort women are still fighting for their restitution and fighting for um, individual uh, reparations and so on. And, uh, and it, it grew out of this activism and it's very much reflected in the museum. So uh, also the care for, for the still living comfort women is really in the center. Another example would be um, the memorial site in Babinia, which is a controversial memorial site, which is still in the making, um, which during uh, the war in Ukraine started interviewing survivors of the massacres uh, of the last uh, one and a half years of Bucha and others, um, because they said it's important to also tell these stories. I don't know how exactly they do it, but just the fact that they say, okay, we have to find a way to deal with that right now. And this is, we are the place, who else should be doing it um, is interesting. Um, of course, you can, you know, that can also be, you know, every war will increase nationalism and so on, that there could be also a problematic aspect to that, but I think they've done it very, very well. And another example is uh, also a, um, a memorial site in, in Italy. In, uh, in Milano called Binario uh, 21. Um, it's in the train station of uh, Milano and it's the place where, from where the Jews of Milano were deported to Auschwitz, uh, maybe Auschwitz, also other camps. And it's a relatively new memorial site. It's under the train station. It's very dramatic uh, in a sort of like hidden, um, hidden part of the train station, uh, very scary part also of this, train stations like kind of like a huge underground space and the memorial site was opened there right before the so-called European refugee crisis started um, and when refugees came pouring into Milano train station um, the Jewish community together with others there was a group of, of Muslim uh, um, post-migrants and, and others they would come together uh, and would work uh, for these refugees to create sort of a, a way to kind of like live in Milano uh, through until they could move on. Uh, and the memorial site invited them to stay there. So now you have to imagine that's a museum, okay, with museum, toilets, museum, whatever. And so they uh, took a part of their museum where these people could live and sleep, wash their laundry, they built in showers uh, and they became um, a space of refuge 
for uh, a couple of months uh, and then people would move on I imagine that you know as a museum you have a specific kind of like everybody in your museum is uh, is doing their job there's nobody there uh, who's a social worker there's nobody who understands in building showers there's nobody who who knows how to deal with the people who are traumatized but still they decided to do so uh, and with the help of uh, of volunteers, they could feed and and and, and house um, the refugees. I think taking these decisions is kind of like a responsible way of dealing with uh, the memory of a, a violent and painful past. Uh, and I find it quite admirable uh, that you kind of like think out of the box and are in the sense kind of like, you know, consequent say like, okay, what have we learned? What is our, what is our responsibility now? Uh, and it might be something as unusual as taking in refugees. Uh, thank you so much. I think those are uh, brilliant uh, sentences to perhaps close on. Thank you so much for uh, all these insights and the entire conversation today, Miriam. Thank you for having me on the show. It was really a pleasure. Uh, the pleasure has been all mine. I have been discussing with Miriam Zadov, who has just released a fascinating new collection under the title Gewalt und Gedächtnis, Globale Erinnerung im 21. Jahrhundert, that is Violence and Remembrance, Global Memory in the 21st Century. I hope you have enjoyed our conversation about some of the key issues addressed in this important new collection. Until the next conversation here at the Review of Democracy.